Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, uh, and I've got with me another fellow Texan, Tom Jessen. Tom. Tell us so much uh, about your journey, because this is going to be a little bit different episode than normal uh, when it comes to education. But tell us uh, a little bit about your educational journey and how it's led you to where you are today. Oh, yeah. Well, th first, thanks for having me, Scott, and thanks for inviting me. Hopefully you have something interesting for your, for your audience, uh, something interesting to say. As they can hear from my accent, I'm not from Texas, uh, although it has welcomed me very graciously. I'm from England. I'm from the north of England, uh, from Newcastle originally. I've been in the States for three, coming on four years now, physical therapist or physiotherapist by trade, um, just practiced in England, pretty much a bog standard physio, what everyone thinks of when they think of a physio, uh, bad knee, bad back, you go and see me, nothing too special. And since I've been in the States, I don't actually practice in the States. So I do what we're going to talk about today, I suppose, which is, well, really I'm a full-time dad. I mean, that's my kind of what takes up most of my time and energy. And then in the, the time and energy I have left, I uh, teach people about sciatica, I guess, has become my thing as it has done sort of accidentally um, just sort of fell into it accidentally. And now, well, there's two books. Um, I'm about, I would get one. My microphone's resting on it. Here's one. This is the one that's coming out. Uh, what's this one? So this is, this looks like I'm taking the opportunity to promote my, I promise. We allow it. We allow it. Believe me. With any, yeah. That's why we're here. Just to prove my credentials anyway. So that's one. That's actually not the cover I'm going for. I'm going to change it. That's a, a little bit boring. I don't really like the typeface. Um, and then the other one's in the next room. That's my um, worst elevator pitch anyway. Ever. Well, I love this because, A, we get to talk a little bit about sciatica, which is uh, you know a very real thing out in the world of physical therapy, something that we treat, something that we see. Uh, but also, I like the approach that you're taking uh, on educating people. Like you said, you're not really practicing. You're just kind of a, a non-biased, neutral educator. Like, hey, man, I'm here. I love this topic. I'm going to dive into it, and I'm going to find a bunch of different ways to teach people about it. You know, so I, I love that. And let's uh, let's talk about it. Let's start off with sciatica, right? Tell the audience, uh, especially those that are unfamiliar, uh, what is sciatica? Give us a little rundown of it, an overview, if you will. So sciatica, as your audience mostly will know, I think, is um, a bit of a catch-all word for pain down the back of the leg. So it's a very old word, you know, sciatica is found in Shakespeare. 
apparently I can't say I, I read much Shakespeare, but it's found in Shakespeare. Um, and it's not really a specific medical term. So there's lots of kind of very grumpy people out there who are writing papers saying, oh, we need to stop saying sciatica. It's confusing. Doesn't really mean anything specific. I don't really mind. I think he can be, he can be relaxed about these things, but it's basically a catch-all term for pain down the back of the leg. There's different, uh, coming from the spine is what people tend to mean. But again, it's so vague, probably in all sorts of things. Um, what I mean when I talk about sciatica is uh, radicular pain and also radiculopathy as opposed to referred pain. And this is kind of where things get confusing. And yeah. uh, I think people, including myself for a long time, use those three words often interchangeably, possibly without really knowing what they mean or only faintly knowing what they mean. But they all have different, quite specific, different meanings. So the last one I mentioned, referred pain, is the most common that you'll see. Uh, referred pain, you know, as you know, Scott, is any pain that's felt sort of distant to the source of the nociception or distant to the source of the injury. You know, when we talk about referred pain uh, in this context, let's say someone has a bit of a sprained facet joint or a bit of a sprained ligament in their back, you know, whatever it is, often they'll feel back pain, right? but it'll refer down the back of their leg as well. Really, really common aching, sort of gnawing, diffuse, quite deep pain going down the back of the leg. And you get referred pain all over the body, right? So, you know, your shoulder hurts and you feel it down your arm towards your elbow. The classic one is like a heart attack. So, you know, people in soap operas like their left arm because that's kind of what happens. So referred pain, really common. It's just because the body is not that good at localizing pain from deep uh, tissue structures. And it kind of just messes up and gives you a weird, vague area of pain. Radicular pain uh, is pain, uh, very specific meaning for pain coming from a nerve root. So again, as you know, we've got the brain, the spinal cord, and between the spinal cord and all the nerves that we can kind of touch in our limbs, you've got nerve roots, which are, you know, even in the lumbar spine, pretty short, little wispy uh, nerves, um, sensory ones and motor ones. And when they're injured, we get a really specific type of pain, a really specific quality of pain, ridiculous pain, usually severe and very neurological. So it might be kind of sharp stabbing, come along with pins and needles, that kind of thing. If you have an irritated or, or injured nerve root in your neck, then you'll feel ridiculous pain in your arm to your fingers usually. And if you have an injured nerve root in your low back, you'll feel a ridiculous pain in your leg. Um, typically into your foot. Often radicular pain is worse distally, actually. So, and, you know, often worse in the foot or the calf. And you can even have it without back pain. You know, sometimes people just have the radicular pain. So it's a really specific kind of neurological pain, often quite severe um, in, in the limb because of an injured nerve root. Uh, and the last one I mentioned was radiculopathy. So radicular pain is an injured nerve root where you get all the pain, obviously. Radiculopathy is an injured nerve root where you get the loss of function. So the it's a nerve injury with a kind of palsy. So you get weakness and numbness. So myotomal weakness, dermatomal numbness, lost reflexes. And of course, lots of people have both, right? Radicular pain and radiculopathy together because it's the same kind of injury. But sometimes, maybe quite often, they are separate. So that's kind of, we unpack sciatica. There's all these different things that are going on. It is kind of useful often to know the difference, if only to kind of understand what you're seeing better so you can help the patient understand what's going on with them better because it's really confusing right you know you've got a problem in your back 
but it hurts in my in the lateral aspect of my foot, like what's going on and kind of just understanding the difference helps to, to guide your patient. It does guide treatment a bit as well. So there's obviously particular surgeries and injections as well. Yeah, I uh, I can appreciate that a lot because I worked in workman's comp for a while there. I mean, I worked in every setting imaginable, but when I was in workman's comp, there was often a lot of injuries to the low back that would radiate down the leg and they'd be confused as to, to why that is. And I was constantly showing them those pictures mm. of like, hey, here's your spinal cord. Here's the nerves that come out. And here's a couple different referral patterns that we can see mm. that come from the back, but actually go down the leg, different areas, side of the leg, all the way down, halfway down, front, back, whatever, right? And, and just mm. showing them that picture and educating them as to the possibilities of what it could be yeah. kind of help start putting the pieces together. It's not that cut and dry. It's not that simple, but it's one simple thing. I could show a picture, had a poster of it, laminated on the wall, walk them over there and say, Hey, just take a look at this. Do any of these kind of look like what you're feeling, you know, and, and, and they're not always exact, but a lot of times it hit the nail on the head and it was close enough that they can mm. say, yeah, yeah, this is the pathway here. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of see where we're talking about. You know, it's not exactly a leg issue. It starts from up higher here, probably where the injury was, and now mm-hmm. it's working its way down. So we got to kind of figure out what's causing that. And then, like you said, how to treat it based on what we're seeing. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think patients can appreciate that. And, and I don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole here of pain science and education, but it, it helps, I think. I think, it, it yeah. you know, it's definitely something that we should take some time to do. Let's talk a little bit about that. But speaking on education... How have you approached teaching and educating patients on this stuff and, and sciatica versus teaching and, and educating clinicians? Do you kind of look at it a little bit differently? It's an interesting question, actually, Scott. I mean, I'm tempted to say no. I'm just checking just to see if that's a, an honest answer. Um, I think I'm going to say no, that I don't approach it too differently personally. My experience, and I wouldn't want to, you know, hold myself up as the, the be all and end all of this, but my experience is that explaining something that, you know, is quite similar, whoever you're explaining it to. I am suspicious sometimes of, um, when we talk about explaining and educating patients, not, not a criticism in any way, just that, that you can go too far in a certain direction of, of packaging things. So he, these are my metaphors. So when I'm talking to patients, I use these metaphors and I love my metaphors or something. I'm but, an English major. I hear you, man. Well, um, but I, I'm kind of skeptical of that sometimes because I, I think um, we can sometimes underestimate patients' ability to, to understand what they're what saying on the one hand, yeah. without wanting to be uh, too <laughs> critical at all. Um, we're not doing rocket science as, as physical therapists and we're not rocket scientists. You know, what we understand is, is not completely out of reach uh, for our patients. You know, people think, oh, I'm doing patient education. Like I say, I'm going to trot out this particular story that I've rehearsed or something uh, or some some analogy that I've used already three times today. And then on the other side of things, I think that um, I'm just sort of thinking as I'm talking here. But so I think basically what I'm trying to say is that I don't see it too differently because I think the the key at the end of the day is to try not to use any special techniques or not to put any barriers between yourself and the patient or the clinician and just to try and understand what you're talking about and then just say it. I think you hit the nail on the head there. At the end of the day, you're trying to simplify something so that it's understandable for everybody, you know, and I think that's a really good point. So like, 
the big, I think the big thing that kind of gets blurred here a lot of times is that when we're talking to peers and clinicians, a lot of times we like to try to use that jargon and like, you know, show how smart we are, especially moving right. to the DPT, right? The doctorate in physical therapy. Everybody wants to show those 50,000 new words we learned in school, you know, when in reality, again, as an English major, I'm trying to break it down and make it simple and communicate yeah. on all levels, right? Because that to me is really the key is how simple can we make this? Because if we're trying to get to the end goal of the transfer mm. of knowledge, it's got to be simple. It's got to be understandable. doesn't matter if it's a clinician, you know, expert or, you know, a patient. Right. Like it just needs to be yeah. common humanistic language here that we can all grasp and understand. Yeah, you completed my thought. Thank you. That's exactly what I was trying to kind of get my brain to, to work out is, you know, we don't need to dumb down too much for patients. And we also don't need to give ourselves too much credit, frankly, and using all these long words and sort of highfalutin explanations with our fellow clinicians. You know, we can kind of get it somewhere in the middle. And I don't aim my stuff at patients or lay people because it just happened that way. I just happened to be talking to clinicians. And then, and because there's all sorts of kind of things to worry about if you start educating people about their conditions online, you know, but I have a lot of um, lay people and patients who read my stuff. And I think they kind of appreciate the fact that I'm just talking as plainly as I can about, about what I know. And the other thing that you said as well, and I love that you picked up on it. I kind of try and bang the drums as much as I can that like very few people are impressed by long words or complicated kind of metaphors and analogies. No one really wants to hear your sort of rhetorical fireworks when you're talking. People just so desperately appreciate simplified information and it, it's also much harder to do. Um, it's, it's very easy when you've got your head in something and you've read a hundred academic papers on it. It's very easy to write in an obscure, impressive or supposedly impressive way. It's much more difficult to simplify it, but that's where the rewards are. If you can do that in my experience. And, and that's kind of the thing, the most consistent feedback I get is I have been in this job 10, 20, 30 years, and no one has explained this topic in a simple term to me because it, it isn't that difficult. None of this is that difficult. And I love the fact that, you know, like I said, you've got several different ways and platforms that you're, you're disseminating this information, you know, and let's talk a little bit about those, because again, you've got an amazing radio voice. So the podcast helps, <laughs> right? You've got one now going on two books, right? You've got the website with some articles, you've got a newsletter, you've got all these things that you've basically taken, and we'll get to this point in a minute, the second point I want to make on, on niching down, and you talk about niching down, you've really found a topic to lean into, which is amazing. I love that. But first, let's talk about all the different ways that you're disseminating this information that A, is allowing you to be a full-time dad, and B, is still becoming an expert in authority, and, and the internet has made this one of the best times in the world to live because we can get this information out to millions yeah. very easily, you know? so. Yeah. Talk about, uh, you know, your kind of your decision or your, your path or your thought process on, you know, all these different ways that you're choosing to educate uh, both the general public and, and clinicians on sciatica. It started with a, twi a Twitter thread and I was a relatively new graduate. I went away to research exactly what I just explained at the beginning of this podcast, Ridiculopathy Referred Pain, Ridiculopain. I made a Twitter thread about it and it was pretty popular. 
it didn't kind of go mega viral, but it was pretty popular and people were saying, oh, I didn't know this. Like, again, exactly what I said. I've been using these phrases, secretly not knowing what they mean. And I basically just got, that was kind of some positive feedback. None of it was particularly conscious or deliberate. So as a practicing clinician, I had no intent intention of becoming self-employed or starting a business or making any products or anything. And then that Twitter thread turned into the UK magazine asked me to write an article, like a conference talk, um, my first kind of podcast thing, and basically dining out on this kind of thing that ever has been known for decades, but also no one kind of actually talks about it. There's this really basic distinction between the, those words. Um, and then of course, what it all entails in terms of mechanisms, of pain and the assessment and the treatment. So I think, um, I'm not answering your question directly, but what I'm trying to say is that it was not, I would, did ne I never at any point sat down and said, I'm going to become the sciatica guy. That's me now. I only really decided to do it. And it was as corny as it sounds, just following my passion. So I just love it. I just love it so much. It's so interesting. And there was a nice little community as well of like-minded people on Twitter who were all kind of encouraging each other and reading stuff specifically about this topic. Um, and I only decided to do it in earnest and think, okay, let's do this properly. Actually, when the pandemic hit, I just moved to the States. The short version is that moved to the States, pandemic, um, my accreditation process just froze up and there's not really any, going to be any jobs anyway, I expected in kind of March 2020. So I was, okay, I'll just kind of double down on this sciatica thing. Best decision I made, I think, was to start a Substack. And it was just so hot back then. I was one of the first people with the Substack. I can't remember why I did that. I can't remember why I chose Substack, but I think I kind of intuited early on that you need to talk to people as directly as possible. Even back then, I felt like if I was like, okay, I have something I want to do and I want to get it to people, I don't want to use an intermediary. And that's actually a, possibly a mistake or a misstep that I've made in the past is I've given a lot of my intellectual property, if you want to be really pretentious about it to other people, because I thought, well, it's out there, it's gone. But I kind of intuited like partly from that, that, okay, I need to kind of own my own thing here. Twitter's not very good for that because you're a complete slave to the algorithm. You know, it almost went under a few months ago. I don't think it ever will, frankly, but it's always an anxiety. And with Twitter, you have to kind of pervert what you're doing a little bit and make it a little bit viral and do some kind of corny hooks and stuff to get people to stop scrolling. So uh, the Substack was great because you can contact people directly. You have someone's email address, you know, they've given you their email address, which is a big deal. You know, they've willingly said, here's my contact details. You can contact me. Um, so it's that kind of permission. And then I just proceeded to kind of as openly as possible work in public, as they say, or like work with the garage door open some of my early newsletters are sort of embarrassingly particular about what I've been doing. Like, oh, I read this paper. Oh, it, it, I was in Michigan. A turkey walked past my window. It was a big, very exciting moment. So there was a newsletter about it. So it's kind of just gone on from there really and snowballed. So Substack is, is really the, where everything, everything goes on. That's kind of the center. And lately I've been doing a kind of putting a bit more work into Twitter threads, which are doing all right. But you can, if you really push it, you can get people from Twitter onto your Substack, which means something, but I'm a bit skeptical that like much happens on Twitter. I'm not sure, but Substack is really where it's at. Really does have to be Substack, right? And again, any email, any email thing, 
that allows you to control what you're doing. Yeah, that's the big one. I think uh, if you're going to do any sort of online business, right? And I, I, I strongly encourage it, especially amongst uh, physical therapists, especially amongst younger physical therapists just coming out now with a lot of student loan debt. You can monetize your own thing and, and should, you know, as far as a personal brand, eventually maybe into a business brand, whatever, right? But the email list to me is the most important aspect of all of social media, of all of marketing, of all of everything you do, because that's the one thing that you control. You own that list, right? You're not subject to the algorithm. And like you said, you know, most of the time people are giving you the permission to contact them. They're opting in by downloading a free PDF or whatever it may be. Or they're just signing up for your newsletter, yeah. whatever it may be. They're giving you the permission to send them stuff because they want to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not it's not junk mail. It's not uh, spam. You know, you're not if, if Twitter goes down and Elon sinks it, you know, it's mm -hmm. not subject to that, right? If that was your one platform, you're just the king of Twitter. Well, good luck if mm -hmm. it goes under, right? Facebook, mm -hmm. even we've seen that over the last several years. The algorithms have changed, you know, week by week, month by month. And eventually, you know, they've stopped showing your stuff to, to your timeline and to other people, especially if it's a business account because they want it to be pay to play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just with an email list, it's the one thing that I would recommend starting and growing as quick as you possibly can. Yeah. You know, yeah, for sure. And let's I mean, again, we talked about this a little and you you alluded to it here, but you really niche down. I mean, you've you've got one particular diagnosis that you are just really passionate about. And that's the key. Yeah. The key yeah. there is being passionate about it. Because if you don't like it, if and I tell people with this all the time, if you're looking to start a side business or get started in something and become, mm -hmm. you know, an expert and authority in that thing, you really have to have a higher purpose and a calling for it and a passion for it. Because if you don't, when it gets tough or boring, you're just going to bail on it. Mm -hmm. You know, and so that I think is one of the first keys when you're really looking for your niche or your population or the people that you can help most. Right. So talk a little bit about that and, and like, you know, how your passion came to be or, or you know, just the process of niching down a sciatica and all that in general. And, and I think I, I will. And I also say that it's kind of harder now when I'm talking about getting started on all this, it was um, terrible with dates and stuff, but five or six years ago, not long ago anyway. I have a terrible mind for dates, but, um, it's harder now because I think there's so much, I might be wrong. You, you probably know better than me, but even back then kind of side gigs and stuff and solopreneurship and stuff wasn't really a thing and all the kind of, kind of pornification of that, which is very common now. So I was able to kind of sincerely and innocently develop like a passion and an interest for this thing online. Uh, talking to other people, but never for years, years, a few years thinking, oh, I actually might want to make a product. And I used to be really clear, like to listeners, like I'm not holding myself up. I am not making a lot of money of this at all, but I'm having a great time and I'm making something to make it worth my while. But I think nowadays it's even a lot of the young, typically blokes, typically men that I talk to will already have a little twinkle in their eye that they want to kind of build an audience and all that stuff. And, and I think that only make, must make it harder to, to think of it in a commercial sense so early, but yeah, Scott, um, it, it, it was very fortunate in some ways that the topic, uh, ridiculous pain is 
there's there's not any great mystery about it. There's like a wealth of literature, but for whatever reason, at the time that I kind of got started on on doing it, there was a bit of a a great forgetting about it. So in in England, this was the time of non-specific back pain and the apex of kind of pain science and kind of the mid-year of any kind of specific diagnosis. So we were all kind of treating the psychosocial, you know, how it is. I don't mean to be critical. That's how I am. I love that stuff. People who had been trained in university at that time, they had never been taught fairly basic things about diagnosis, like what is ridiculous pain properly. And many people who, who had been in practice for five, 10 years had not really been exposed to that kind of reasoning. So when I started talking about it, it was, although there's this kind of huge wealth of traditional literature going back decades, it felt very fresh and interesting because it was a bit countercurrent at the time. And that can only be like pure luck that I happened to, to do, to talking like I won the lottery. Like, I'm like it's not like it's any great yeah. fortune in life. It's just, it. It's, I talk like that because I feel very fortunate to have developed a passion at something. Some people never do in their life, right? I'm very fortunate. But so I was very lucky that people were interested, which helped propel me forward in what I was doing. And then from, from there, it's just like, again, the topic's pretty interesting because there's so many kind of weird and wonderful papers, like old fashioned studies, where they're experimenting on people under, uh, having surgery, but not under anesthesia. They're just tugging on their roots, nerve roots and stuff. Just really interesting, kind of endlessly um, interesting stuff. But then maybe you could say that about anything like it. Uh, once you go deep on anything, it's pretty interesting. There's interesting stuff out there. I'm sure there's people who are endlessly fascinated by ankle sprains, which I just can't imagine, but I'm sure they are. I don't know if I answered your question there. But yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, there, there's good news with physical therapy in general is there's a lot of specialties and a lot of areas to go deep on and and not, you know, keep it uh, narrow and deep as mm -hmm. opposed to broad and wide. And I think that's a good thing because the, there's certain things, like you said, that I don't want to go into, right? Pediatrics, not my thing, man. Like, thank God there's people out there that enjoy pediatrics because yeah. I know who to send them to now. I know who the best of the best are for pediatrics, you know? But but again, it, like you said, it's it's finding that interest, that zone of genius, right? That passion. Because like you said, if you don't, some people never do that. And if you don't, that's that, that almost to me is a scarier situation than, than finding mm. something and trying to go after it, you know, mm. Mm. uh, clocking in, clocking out nine to five, boring, you know, existence that, that, that doesn't sound like a, a great option to me, mm. you know, which mm. is why I, I encourage people to, to pursue curiosity and, and lifelong mm. learning. And, you know, you don't have to know it all, right. Mm but it's nice to know enough to, to start seeing what you like, you know, taste testing, dipping your toes in the water and seeing what sticks and what doesn't. And then from there, you can kind of navigate, you know, where you really want to lean into. Yeah. So I can yeah. appreciate that for sure. It's hard though. I'm thinking about like, well, what people listen to this and, and thinking, okay, cause I mentor a few couple of people and they're trying to do something, you know, they're, 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 they're ambitious people, not in a material sense, but they want to get the most out of their lives and their career. They go, well, what were they? I tell them the same thing. You've got to be interested in what you're doing, but it sounds like a cliche and it's true, but it sounds like a cliche. All cliches are true in a way. And how do you, how do you know, is my question, Scott, is for you is like, well, how do you know, okay, this is the thing. Once I've got this scent, I'm just going to go with this. How do you kind of make the decision to stick not twist 
And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it, there's it's multifactorial, right? It's not just like, oh, I'm really good at this. I'm just going to do this. Because you can be really good at something and not enjoy it at all. Mm. Right. So mm. there's no sense going down that path. But in theory, it should be something that you're fairly decent at. Right. Or at least you feel that it's worth it enough to put in the time, effort and energy to do the reps and to to do the deeper dives. Mm. You know, it, it should be something that maybe people come to you and ask a lot of questions about because they feel like you are the source or the, or the you know, the guy or the gal on that yeah, thing. You know, it should be something that is going to solve a problem or answer a question for some sort of population at the end of the tunnel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it can be like for self, but I mean, you know, you could be the greatest ankle sprain treater in the world, mm -hmm. but you don't have anybody coming to you if they don't know about you and, and you're not going yeah. out there and telling everybody all these great yeah. things, you know? Yeah. So it, it really goes back to just like the process you know, you have to really be invested in the process of becoming the expert and authority in that thing that you love, mm -hmm. you know? So, so it, it, it's almost like you have to find the population that it's going to help and, and where you're going to make the most impact that higher calling, mm -hmm. because, you know, again, we're all put on the earth for a purpose and it's like, all right, yeah, I'm a physical therapist. I help people. Well, great. Mm -hmm. But, but like, you know, I could have been an English teacher and help people, you know, mm. I could have been a nurse. I could have been a, a you know, a, a chef, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, you're more than your occupation and it all comes down to identity. That's mm -hmm. the, that's the big, the center of this whole thing and finding that thing, that zone of genius, your higher purpose, your higher calling comes down to your identity. You have to know who you are first, find the population or the, the problem you're going to solve for the world. And then chart out and plan the journey toward it. And that's to me where you kind of find that intersection of who I am, what I'm great at, what I love, what I'm passionate about and how it can help somebody. If you can connect that point A to point B, the journey just becomes mm. falling in love with it. And there's going to be ups and downs. I mean, that journey is not going to be a straight and narrow path. It's going to mm. be a bit of a roller coaster, but you have to love that. You have to appreciate the downs and the ups, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think if there's something I'd pick up on what you said about people asking you questions. And I think you said, oh, people think of you as the guy or the girl to ask about that thing. Um, well, not necessarily the person, right, but a person to ask. Yeah. And I think that is, that's interesting because it connects to kind of what I said earlier, which is that for me, this 
is sounds again pretty corny, but it's like it's not it doesn't feel like a solo thing that I'm doing because I know there's a kind of a constellation of people uh, on Twitter and in real life. I do know some people in real life as well um, who are working on this same thing in their own way, and we all have similar passions. And then the Substack helps as well because kind of that gives you that sense that you're moving forward with things and you get this constant feedback and and it, and it connects to almost like a Silicon Valley concepts of like validation um, where you need to look for kind of validate what you're doing and get some feedback. Don't go into the gate cave, the, the garage and kind of work on something and then bring it out and no one gives a shit about it. Yep. Um, and that's kind of another, I hate, well, I, it is advice, but with, you know, advice if people want to be, do anything like what I've done, which is find an interest, not make a lot of money. I have to really, really emphasize that. You need to have that sense of other people doing it with you and listening to you and interested in what you're doing. Like there's some energy to it. Don't keep chipping away. We'll keep chipping away until you find that. that that's a great takeaway there because I think people start side businesses and side gigs for sure because they think it's going to make them a bunch of money. And mm. a lot of times, A, that isn't true. And B, if it is, it may take quite some time to, to build and establish. So I think uh, another key takeaway there is that if you come at it with a, a servant's heart and really try to help more people, the money becomes a byproduct, right? Mm. Just like being curious and finding things out because you know it's going to help a greater cause or a bigger population. That's the first step. And then, the you know, the money becomes the byproduct. You know, you can blow it up a little bit here and there and really, you know, get in front of more eyes again by using the pay to play culture on, on running ads on social media and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do and you really enjoy it, it grows naturally organically. Right. And it may not be the pace you want. You may not be a, a seven figure earner in a year, you know, but at the same time, leveraging your relationships with other people, a will help you, you know, it, I, I think the quote is, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go, you know, bring along other people, go with other people, right? So working with other people, using those networks and and seeing what other people are working on in relation to your stuff, mm. you know, that, that another cliche, we've just been lining them up and knocking them down today, but, mm. you know, a rising tide raises all ships. So everybody working in the the sandbox on that thing, Mm-hmm. They're all going to get lifted up little by little as they all shout each other out and share each other's stuff and bring them on board and have them on podcasts and write books with them and do studies with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good cause. And if you start with that, you're probably going to be okay in the long run, right? Whether you become rich or not is 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 another thing. There's a lot involved with that as far as, like we said, marketing yeah. and online tools and stuff. But man, if yeah. you're loving it and you're enjoying it and you're really into it and it's interesting and it's helping people in the end of the day. Oh, and by the way, you make a little money. Hey, that's a pretty good gig, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's two, there's two things there, isn't it? Just to, to emphasize what you're saying about something that again, seems obvious, but it's not particularly in, in writing. So I, everything I do is writing really. I'm not, I've never don't practice speaking. I'm not like, I don't practice. I, I don't do talks. I don't do courses, nothing like that. In writing, especially people forget this is at the end of the day, what you do has to be useful to someone or has to be of value to put it more broadly, whether that value is practical value in the clinic or some sort of more kind of ab- abstract value that it makes them feel a particular way that motivates them, or it's just valuable because it's interesting and it, it passes the time. When people get 
into the writing mode, there's something that flips in their brain and they start writing high school essays or college essays where they're writing for an imaginary teacher. They do some boring introduction about epidemiology of back pain is 20,000 people per whatever. There's some sort of hump that people have that they can't get over in writing, particularly where they forget to just be useful or valuable. The, the piece of writing has to be valuable. No one owes you their time to read it. So yeah, just to connect that to, to what you're saying about, you know, what you do has to be an act of service, you know, as, as you put it, I think. Yeah. And, and as you said, the, the money will come. And I like, I like that, but as well, one thing I've have to, have to learn is that it actually doesn't, <laughs> unless you do certain minimal things <laughs> to make it happen. Um, and I think that's another, I do a lot of stuff for free and I never quite know where the balance is, um, of what to charge and, and that kind of thing. And I'm still, I'm still learning that, but I think there's certainly, certainly something in bad at is kind of think you have to kind of flip that switch in my brain that says, actually, you need to turn this thing into a profit. You, you, you can stop being the service guy now. You need to turn this thing into a profit so that you can fund the rest of the stuff. You nailed and it. That's, that's, yep. That'll be right up your street. You know way more yep. about, about that than me. Early on, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it for free. I think that's a part of it. That's a part of the process. Like, hey, let me just start writing. Let me just put out a blog. Let me put out my book. Let me just, let me just start something. It just has to exist. Mm -hmm. Then once it exists, once you have a process, once you have a flow and you get it going, you're getting good at it. You're like, all right, cool. You know, there's several different ways to monetize. That's, you know, never an issue. Like you don't want to charge your readers per se. You can say, all right, I'm not going to charge them for something on my blog. I'll just run some ads instead. Mm -hmm. And just through the traffic, I can collect revenue, right? That that's one way to go about it. So that, you know, you're not charging your audience directly. You're just, you know, they they understand there's going to be some ads related to your blog or whatever, or you'll have affiliate links in the blog that click them to something they could purchase that's helpful. Like, hey, I use this ball to roll my leg to help with sciatica. Here's the link, you know, my affiliate link on Amazon. This is the product I really like. I recommend it to all my people, whatever, right? Mm. So there, there's ways to to monetize it to where you're not selling directly to the patient or the client or, or the reader, if you will. Um, or you can charge the reader directly and say, hey, for my course, here it is, 50 bucks or 100 bucks, whatever it is, buy my course, it'll probably get you better. Whatever, right? There's there's a bunch of different ways to do that. But I think starting it off for free is not never a problem, right? Because you're starting to learn and craft your your mm. way of doing things and figuring out your road and path and what works for you. Mm. you know. And at some point, it would be nice to even get some testimonials and stuff and and book reviews and things like mm. that you know, for free, just like, Hey, here's, here's a copy of my book, read it. I'd love for you to put a, you know, a review out there or you yeah. sell it for a week or so for 99 cents on Amazon, get it out to all your readers for that, you know, bargain basement price. And then they write review reviews for you. And then eventually once you get good feedback, boom, you jump it up to the regular price. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, there's stepping stones that you can take, you know, to get there. But it, I think it has to be a, a decent balance of recognizing that like, Hey, I've done all this for free. Now I, I, you know, I'm becoming a bit of an expert and authority in it. And I can charge for my, my IP, my intellectual property, because I'm getting better at it and it's going to help people. Mm -hmm. But you said an interesting thing there too, that, you know, I think people need to recognize is a lot of times the goal with business or with, with profit and making money, profit is not a bad thing. You, you need money, right? It's just, money's just a tool. It helps ebb and flow. 
but the goal should kind of be to make more so that you can give more, right? Mm-hmm. So if I want to treat people pro bono for free, it would be nice to make so much money then that I can do that and just take a whole day off and say, you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't need to, to run my practice on Fridays. I'm going to just devote Fridays to free pro bono treatment because mm-hmm. I've made enough money during the week already. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that's kind of the way to look at it too is like, yeah, I'd like to make enough money so that I have the time freedom. And the time freedom comes with money freedom. So, you know, at some point you need to figure out a way to make enough money so you can do what you want, when you want, how you want, and treat the people that do need help maybe can't afford it or can't. Mm -hmm. I I can't tell you how many books I've given out of mine for free just because, you know, it was a student or or somebody that was, you know, bad up and needed it. And I was like, you know what, man, here's a free copy. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, not a huge deal, you know? But, but at the end of the day, you got to put a roof over the head too, you know? So it's, it's a delicate balance there, I think. Yeah. I struggle with it. It's partly just a personal, personal thing. And it's partly being English as well. I think, um, especially in the English healthcare system that it's oh, yeah. more. Yeah. Nationalized. Round right? upon. Guys... Yeah. To, to be seen what one of the things, you know, as you say, is that I think it's, it's kind of a luxury opinion in some ways that, that when people kind of poo-poo the idea of making making profit from people on quite comfortable salaries um but i think a lot of public goods come from people who have the means to to fund them you know at the moment i'm reading a, a book by charles dickens who as you know and uh, was voraciously interested in profit and just wrote uh, maybe this is unfair but my understanding is that he wrote serially and he was paid by the word and that's why his output is so sort of prodigious is because he was making a ton of money off it. And that's my understanding of um, Mozart too, I think was very interested in profit and, and, you know, composed form. It sounds obvious. Of course he did. Like, yeah, as you say, you need, you need these things, but it is a very interesting hangup that I have at least. And, and whether it's kind of a personal thing or like, I'm scared of how other people see me, you know, okay. So Tom's turning this into his, you know, his monetizing there. Okay. That's what it's about, you know? But yeah, it's funny, it's funny old thing. Maybe you can give me a counseling session sometime. <laughs> anytime, anytime, man. Yeah, it's not just you. You're not alone. Believe me, there's a money mindset uh, that's a barrier to a lot of these issues. That mm. That's one of the first things we have to break down before you even think about, you know, starting your own business and doing that thing. Mm. We kind of have to unpack your upbringing. And like it's, again, like I said, it's not just you, right? If If people were brought up to where, you know, their parents were like, you know, well, we don't talk about money. Don't bring money up. You know, it's not a kind of co- topic of a conversation. And, you know, if, if it was always that, you know, scarcity mindset where you hold on to money and you save it and save it, you don't give it out that, that just may be how you roll. That's how you were brought up. That's how you look at it. Um, but you know, if you change that, that view and that mindset and you go to more of an abundance mindset where there's plenty of money out there it's just a tool we need it to mm-hmm. you know interact and survive in society then it can kind of become an a little bit more open and instead of asking questions like you know how do i hold on to all this money and hoard all this money it becomes more of mm-hmm. like how can i use my money better for service or if i can't get that thing that i want instead of asking oh or saying we can't afford that saying how can i afford that what can i do to make it so that I can afford that, you know, or, or whatever. There's just, there's a lot of good books out there on it. There's a, it, it, but it is a huge barrier for, for all humans. Again, it just Mm -hmm. depends. And a lot of the times you'll see people poo-pooing, you know, money and profit because they don't have it, you know? And, and so it's like naturally all people who have money are are bad. Right. And that's just Mm -hmm. not the case. 
especially when, like you said, some good can come from it in public service and stuff. So, you know, obviously Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? And like all these like foundations that have had billions and billions of money and, and their whole goal is to give it all away because they, they have too much of it, right? So now they're trying to find good good ways to use that money and, and good um, programs to support. So uh, we really took a left turn at Albuquerque here. Uh, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know what you're voting for. I don't know if we're getting uh, it. No, yeah, man. No, it, like I said, I, I think the key here was that we started out at sciatica uh, and made a left turn into uh, the business world. However, like I said, the, the in-between is really where the good stuff was because it is educating people by you know, your podcast, your book, your website, all of this stuff. And and I think just physios need to realize that, hey, we can do all of this. We have the authority, the knowledge, the background, the upbringing mm -hmm. to do exactly what you're doing and educate the way that you're educating. So I applaud you. And, and again, like I said, it's it's great to see people out there. And that's why we try to spotlight people and and highlight them for doing good work and for trying to spread the good word and just show What's out there? What's working now? How is it getting better? How's it getting worse? What are best practices? What are not so best practices? You know, just that's what the whole, this whole podcast was founded on was like mm. trying to break down silos in healthcare education and try to fix a broken system. You know, I don't know how to do it, but I'll bring the experts on and ask them how to do it. You know, um, well, Tom, we have this one final question we ask every guest. And that question is if you could change higher education, whether it be physio related or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? It's not something I think about much because I'm not connected to that world. When, if you'd asked me when I was a student, I would have said one thing, which I think I disagree with now. You know, I'm hesitating is because everyone's got an opinion on this and I know that it's much harder than you think. Oh yeah. My, it's my it's multifactorial. Yeah. My buddy's a lecturer and he hates being told, why don't you teach this? Or why don't you teach this in school? Cause I'm already teaching like 6,000 things. <laughs> What do you want me to take out? I should just give you something boilerplate, but I want to give you like a decent, like thoughtful answer. Well, here's the good news. There's no wrong answers. Mm. It's your opinion on, even like you said, when you were in school, you know, what's something that maybe could have been done better or that you think, mm. even if we implemented it now, might help the situation in the future? I think that the main thing that I think is that um, cautious stainless I wish there was more freedom for, for students to, to kind of build and create things other than essays. And if you tell that to a lecturer, they'll say, I know <laughs> we're trying. When I was at, at school, that type of thing was they'd make us do like weird portfolio things, which is so unnatural. Like whoever keeps a portfolio and you have to keep it in a folder, you know, some people do that. I wish there were ways for students to build and use that in the abstract sense. Like, but whether it's software, piece of educational products, and a side business, to to build things outside of the kind of narrow academic type of thing. I love academics. I think it's very important. Like that's kind of my thing. That was always my thing. But I really think that if you're given sort of ownership of some sort of project to do, then that can kind of really give give you a lot more. So yeah. Students given the kind of agency and the latitude to build some sort of project and to, yeah. to work on it, their own thing. Yeah, I like that. More creative freedom. Um, mm. You know, I think we need that even for the professors as well. You know, back in the day when it was more philosophy and people were just walking around free thinking and 
coming up with things, you know, I, I think we definitely could get back to that. And I think there's opportunities in the States here a little bit with like tech schools and vocational schools. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it, yeah, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're even saying like right from the get-go, we should just have opportunities to do those things and create things and try things, yeah. not just tests. And I think tests and grades have really ruined the academic system here in the U.S. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not that long that we've had grades, like grades kind of started around the early 1900s and just like 50s and 60s is where they really tried to like structure them with the ABCDF mm -hmm. model mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it's gotten so much worse because, you know, I get it. There's like certain standards you have to hit, but like students are just constantly asking me, you know, what's going to be on the test? How are we going to be graded? What, what, you know, how do I get this grade? What do I, I, I need this grade. What do I do? And they're all just focused on the wrong things. They're focused on the grades and the output instead of the learning and the process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that, you know, having more open time to try things and create and figure things out would, would definitely be a lot more conducive to learning at least. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And, and I, it sounds like the physical therapy world, at least here in the U S is moving toward a more competency based mm -hmm, curriculum, mm -hmm. which would be nice. Cause that just means you have to demonstrate mastery in something to move on. So that, that could be good. Maybe we get away from tests and exams and, and whatnot, but you know, yeah. we'll see, I, I think it's yet to be determined. And then obviously we're going to have to do studies on it and find the feedback yeah. and see if it worked or not. You know, it's a long process yeah. for sure, but, uh, definitely would be nice to have a little more creative freedom, which is why I like to write and do the podcast and do all those mm -hmm. things. Because for me as an English major, and you know, I was in all the musicals and the plays and, yeah. you know, student government and sports and everything. I was just always doing and trying and mm -hmm. interacting. So I need that creative outlet and, uh, teaching doesn't always allow you that when it's teach this, this way, by this time, you know, yeah. a little more rigid instruction. So you got to find ways to have that for sure. I like that output. Yeah. I like that idea. That's why I just kind of hesitated so much with the answer is because you don't want to blame anyone in particular. It's like, there's so many constraints on yeah. making the system, but what's your answer to that question, Scott? Like, what, what would you. What was it? What was the question? Was the one thing? Yeah. If you could change education. one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT right. or otherwise, what would you change and how would you change it? Um, and I, I actually was on our podcast interviewed when my book came out and stuff like that. And I, I said the same thing was, was cost. And that was the number one most given answer <laughs> here and, you know, yeah. uh, so far, but the reason I, you know, my reason's a little bit different than, than a lot of people. Because when I graduated, I graduated with uh, a bachelor's in English, a master's in physical therapy. I then went on to do the transitional doctorate of physical therapy and then the educational doctorate. So I have two doctoral degrees and $140,000 worth of student loans to, to mm. prove it, right? Mm. Which isn't terrible in these days. It's hard to say, but it's not that bad because there's people graduating with just a DPT at $150,000, dollars $250,000 worth of student loan debt. And they're going to come out making 65, 75,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So that debt to income ratio is not going to fly. You can't keep yeah. doing that to these, you know, to students. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, the only reason I, I kind of took the, the job that I took was so that I could weave some of these teachings and this education on how to, to manage stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And luckily I've, I've presented now at a couple conferences. We got some research that we're working on and things for you know, just financial literacy courses entered into PT programs. Obviously a lot of my stuff and my book is all based on side jobs, side gigs, side hustles, extra ways to make money, mm -hmm. you know, based on your, your 
um, education doesn't have to be, but it can be, it should be mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. one foot in the boat, at least, you know, of healthcare. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I definitely think that it's again, multifactorial, but we've got to figure out a way to just curb these student loans, not just for physical therapy, for all higher education, which mm-hmm. is way mm-hmm. too expensive right now. And there's, mm-hmm. it's just like a hockey stick graph. Yeah. It's not like, you know, little tiny incremental increases, like the cost of living. It just like all of a sudden, like, you know, seventies or so just shot up and it hasn't stopped. Like education has no ceiling. They just keep charging more and more and more. And I guess until people stop paying it and the numbers start going down for admissions, which it seems like they are after COVID. Yeah. 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 All way outside my, my understanding of, I'll be honest, even in England, I don't really understand that stuff very well. But uh, it's. I wish I'd said that instead. <laughs> no, man, no, it's great. We love the uh, variety in the answer, which is why we ask it. You know, we want people to just really think back on their, you know, reflection of education and what it was like and what they thought could be better. Because that's, yeah. again, the reason that uh, we started this podcast was because we had bumpy rides through our education. I mean, I was an English major having a transition into physical therapy, yeah. which was not a natural transition. Uh, and I don't blame the teachers or educators. And and then I just found out last year I had ADHD. So that explains a lot as well yeah. as to like why it was a struggle for me to learn and test and all that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I had a bumpy ride. I felt it could have been done better in some ways, in some aspects. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know the answers. So we asked the experts to come on and tell us the answers, what they thought, you know. Mm-hmm. And so because of these conversations, we've had some really good uh, answers. I, it's made me think about how to better teach and educate mm-hmm. um, and learn, which is, you know, a key part of being a professor is always still learning too. You know, they pay mm-hmm. me to learn, which is kind of cool. Yeah. 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 So, you know, well, you got a, a good gig. Yeah, over it's, there. I was just going to say yeah. it's a pretty good gig. <laughs> well, Tom, it's been a pleasure talking with you, man. Yeah. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Where can people reach out to you and find you online if they want to learn more about sciatica and all your writings and musings and books and podcasts and all that stuff? Where can people locate you? Uh, Twitter at Thomas underscore Jessen, personal website, tomjessen.com. I uh, need an update and Substack is tomjessen.substack.com. I would say, uh, yeah, again, thanks for inviting me, Scott. Uh, it's good to meet you. Uh, I'll definitely next time I'm over in towards in Austin way, I'll, I'll give you a call. Yeah, um, sure. So I hope that the listeners got something, you know, like usually when people ask me on a podcast and like, it's fairly obvious what they want to hear. And then this is a little different and not really something I could prepare for. But one thing I think is maybe it would have been good for me to talk about more of the nitty gritty of, okay, how do you write so that people actually want to read it? You know, how do you picture a product and sort of tastefully and, uh, or if you ever want to talk about that stuff another time or, or if listeners want to get in touch with me about that, maybe. I talked ab- a bit abstractly about, and we talked, we had a little, a lot of cliches, didn't we? But if yeah. you want to get the nitty gritty a bit, then I'm, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Too. Sure. Well, I don't often do this. I don't really cross promote my, uh, my podcast, but this may be a good one for that. We may, uh, have to talk about writing and how to write effectively, uh, on the professors of profit podcast. So, mm-hmm. Uh, let's set something up for that. And, uh, I will put all your links to the show notes and stuff, uh, uh, in the show notes so that people can get to you easily. And then, uh, yeah, do a little search for when we do the part two of this, uh, on the professors of profit, uh, podcast. So stay tuned for that, uh, where we go into, uh, more deep musings on writing and, and especially in the healthcare world and how you do it effectively. Yeah. So thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure, man. Yeah. Nice to meet you, Scott.
Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.